Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. As you know by now, I would imagine most of you know this, that in Alberta, there will be no more contact tracing as of the 16th of August. If you test positive for COVID, it doesn't mean you have to quarantine. They still recommend it, but you will not have to quarantine, self-quarantine. And, uh, yeah, that's got some doctors, it's got some folks in this country uh, energized and uh, critical. But also, on the other side of the country, in New Brunswick, as I tweeted out earlier today, New Brunswick has taken steps beyond that. New Brunswick, essentially, is wide open with uh, pre-COVID realities. There are criticisms about New Brunswick's decision. So, uh, there's some questions I want to ask about this. And other questions that have to do with, as we like to say on this program, where health and politics intersect, at the intersection of health and politics. And joining us for that program is uh, Dr. David Jacobs. He's the chair of the Ontario Specialists Association. He's president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. We're always glad to have uh, Dr. Jacobs join us. Dr. Jacobs, thank you very much for coming on the show. And what's your opinion, if I may ask you just out of the gate first, what are your thoughts of the decision taken by Albert? and the decision taken by the province of New Brunswick. What are you thinking? Well, here's what I'm thinking. I think that every province has a very different reality in terms of uh, their socioeconomics, in terms of population density, in terms of uptake of the vaccine, in terms of prevalence of the virus. Um, And it's very important for us to pay attention to the fact that not every place is the same. Uh, not every place is Toronto, not every place is Montreal. Uh, so we, we do have to respect the fact that different areas have different realities. And we also have to respect the fact that the public health officers have an army of epidemiologists working with them, trying to figure out what's safest for their population. Okay. Now, we are going to, if we're not already there, and in some places we are, obviously, we are going to be in a situation where the COVID virus and its various mutations, or variants if you prefer, are going to be just an endemic reality. Uh, Alberta is clearly seeing it as, as that. New Brunswick similarly. Many jurisdictions in the United States are. Uh, and, and I hear people say, well, we should listen to the medical officers of health. They'll be the ones who make the intelligent decision. And then sometimes I hear the very same people challenge the medical officers of health, such as Dr. Dina Henshaw in Alberta. Where do you think, when do you think we'll be at that line, that position, when we can say, okay, it's endemic now, we'll treat it as another communicable disease, maybe more challenging than the annual flu, but essentially it's another communicable disease. When will we be there? Well, so we're already there and we've been there for a very long time. Uh, COVID is now endemic to North America. It's not going anywhere. So the question isn't whether or not it's going to be endemic. The question is, are we at a point where we've done everything that we possibly can to minimize its impact on hospital resources and on the health of the general population? And in order to do that, um, there's really only one thing that we must 100% do and that's vaccinate. Because once we're vaccinated, given the fact that this is an endemic virus, then 
we've done really what we can do. And then we have to decide, all right, how are we going to live with this? The problem that we have right now is that we've done an excellent job vaccinating, but we are not completely there yet. We still have large pockets of people who are just never going to get vaccinated. And then we also have large pockets of people who have difficulty accessing vaccination, uh, whether it be mobility, language barriers, financial barriers. Uh, there are a lot of barriers for some people to get vaccinated. So the real key for us to get back to as close to normal as we possibly can is massive, massive uptake of the vaccine. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to get into the argument or the question with you about why we should vaccinate. You and I are in agreement on that. And I already receive hundreds of emails from people who are not in agreement. I don't want to add to that list of emails. They all they know who they are. They I think they understand. Well, I shouldn't go there. No, I'm not going to say they understand what they should do, because that'll result in emails. <laughs> so let me. I'm just going to get out of the thin ice now and head through to the more secure territory of asking you this. Uh, do you believe, and you and I have talked about politics involved with healthcare, and you said to me on the air that you believe that the majority of people in health care are politically more to the left than they are to the right. Okay, so understanding that, has the approach to fighting COVID, let's go back to the beginning, to 2020, has the approach to fighting COVID been scientific or has it been more political? So, it's very interesting. The approach to fighting COVID uh, by the majority of the world has been scientific insofar as it's been recognized as a communicable disease um, and it has uh, it, it resulted in a tremendous amount of research. I've never seen so many journal articles being printed at one time. And it's also resulted in this huge push for a vaccine. We've never been able to develop a vaccine that's as effective as this as quickly as we have. So science has pushed a lot of it. But then we've also seen areas where politics got involved, and we've seen that in terms of renaming uh, it from the Wuhan virus to uh, COVID-19. We've seen uh, the variants renamed from the regions where they've come from to, uh, to, to Greek new, uh, letters. And that's very, very new to us. And a lot of that is pushed by political correctness in politics. Um, and you can understand why China would say, well, we don't want it to be associated with us because of all the negative ramifications of it. Then you flip to local politics and you look at Canada. And, you know, we had all sorts of rules at the beginning that made absolutely no sense. So starting off with uh, the borders, calling, saying shutting borders was racist. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, shutting borders is the first response that you should do for any pandemic. So... It's been a bit of a hodgepodge, but I'll, I'll tell you that for the most part, science has been driving the vast majority of the good decisions that we've been making over time. Okay, so now my feeling has been that politicians have crossed over into healthcare, and healthcare providers have crossed over into politics, often to the benefit of no one, and and that's been that has been one of my concerns, and I've heard it. You know, I mean, we have a health minister who's a. Uh, She's never had anything to do with being a medical professional, uh, Professor, um, Minister Haydu, but she makes medical pronouncements, and, and I, I don't want to hear it from her. I want to hear it from you. But moving on uh, diagonally here at our intersection of health and politics, so now we have the Delta variant, Dr. Jacobs, and we keep 
hearing messages about how much more transmissible it is than others. And there's the story out of Massachusetts that um, I think it was 72 or 74 percent of people who were surveyed in one particular area or tested in one particular area of, uh, of Massachusetts who had uh, the Delta variant were also double vaxxed. And that raised a couple of things, a couple of points. Number one, people who were were anti-vaxxers were saying, see, see, what's the point? Because those people have been have been infected. <laughs> so I'm heading back to the thin ice now. <laughs> I don't want to go there. So, so let me jump on the thin yeah, ice. Yeah, please, please this, save me. That thin ice is incredible. Well, no, I'm, I'm taking you down with me, my friend. <laughs> We're going for a swim. Okay. Um, the... There, there's the old question, you know, people are complaining about their, uh, their, 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 their health care that was delivered to them. And the doctor says, are we talking? And they're like, yeah. He said, did you die? No. Okay, then I did a good job. <laughs> so, and, that, and that's the idea with the vaccine. So, yes. Um, and and I, we want to be serious about this. So, you can catch COVID after you've been vaccinated. But when you catch COVID after you've been vaccinated, I'm never going to see you. You're not going to develop a bad enough case that you end up in the ICU. A certain number of people might get a COVID pneumonia from it, but most, but it's an infinitesimally small number who will end up uh, requiring hospitalization after they've been vaccinated. And that is point number one, two, three through 10 as to why you need to get vaccinated. Now, let's flip to the other side. With this new Delta variant, we are seeing that it's being picked up by uh, people who have been vaccinated and spread by people who have been vaccinated. So that's why when we look at what's happening in Alberta and New Brunswick, we're going to have to be a little bit careful because there are still a large number of people who either can't be vaccinated because they're 12 and under or won't be vaccinated because they don't want it or uh, have been inadequately vaccinated because they've only had one dose or are immunosuppressed. So if the entire population can still pass to those people, then the really only protection that we're going to have for those people are one of two things. Either more people get vaccinated so we can create herd immunity around them, or we might have to at some point look at uh, wearing masks as we see spikes in cases. I don't like that, but that's the reality that we're living in. All right, Dr. So, Jake. Yeah, so, yeah. Finish, finish so, your thought, please. No, 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 no. That, 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 well, my thought is, please get vaccinated. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. At my own peril. So when we get to the issue, Dr. Jacobs, of mixed messaging that confuses people, one example is the Delta variant concern. We heard from the very beginning that it was in Britain, And there was a great concern that Britain was going to see a huge spike of cases and maybe their unlocking of society was too early and they'd have to wait. Well, yesterday there was um, news, a news story, that uh, as British society opens up, the rates of COVID infection are leveling off. Not what those who were worried about, the opening we're expecting. And so then you can get, get people who are saying, well, you were telling me it was going to be bad. You were telling me the modeling was going to see things really turn ugly. And here we are a couple of weeks later, the actual numbers away from the modeling are telling me everything is leveling off. How do you, I mean, how do you align that, that, 
that issue, that thinking, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you come to grips with mixed messaging that confuses people? Well, uh, a few things that I want to point out. Um, first of all, uh, we're actually in a better situation than the UK. The UK is predominantly protected by AstraZeneca, whereas in Canada we are predominantly protected by Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer is much more eff- uh, has much more efficacy against the Delta variant uh, than the uh, AstraZeneca does. So whatever we see in the UK, we can expect to see things even better in Canada. Now, in terms of the mixed messaging, this is something that's been a problem throughout the pandemic. What epidemiologists do is they model data. In order to model data, you make certain assumptions. Every assumption that you make introduces an error or a, poten- or a potential error into the final analysis. So the more errors that you introduce, the wider the spread of what you're predicting could be. So you can end up with models, as we've seen before, that predict absolute disaster uh, that never comes true. Uh, and it's very encouraging to see that, that's, that, that things are leveling off in the UK because that's the difference between modeling and real-world data. So the real-world data is going to suggest to us that maybe things won't be so bad. I can tell you right now at, at the hospital, I read out the emergency room on a regular basis and I read out the ICU. We're seeing the numbers of people presenting with new COVID pneumonias. It's just dropped precipitously. We're just not seeing anywhere near the numbers we had before. So this is good news, but I understand why people would be confused by it. So where, let, let's sneak media into this uh, intersection of health and politics. Let's sneak the media into this. How good a job is mainstream media doing reporting on developments with COVID, with the, uh, with the variants, with the entire story? Is media reporting, do you think, incomplete, uh, too negative, or doing just fine? actually think media is doing an excellent job and have been throughout the the pandemic. I think that if we want to get back to the intersection of politics and health, the one place where we are finding media slipping a bit is stories like uh, Hinshaw in Alberta versus uh, the exact same measures being taken in New Brunswick. So there is a bias towards hammering um, conservative governments when they make a decision and ignoring uh, NDP or liberal governments uh, who make the exact same decisions. So we are, you know, that would probably be the only place where it's going to slide. And I can tell you with certainty that uh, New Brunswick is going to get a free pass and Alberta will, will, will continue to get hammered at the same time for doing the same thing. Okay, we have just under a minute left. We know that we're going to be seeing the emerging of new variants, new mutations of COVID. It's just a fact of life. There may be some out there that we're not even aware of yet. Probably are, says the layperson. Uh, How do you think we should be dealing with the issue of emerging variants? What's the best way to do it? I think the, the, the most important principle that we need to have is that we have to accept the fact that we're not going to be able to be in full control of any viral outbreak. We're going to have to uh, celebrate the fact that we have vaccines and use them. 
we're going to have to accept the fact that we're going to need to have booster shots in all probability uh, if there's a particular, particularly nasty variant that comes around. Um, that having been said, we also have to realize that our economy is important, our children's education is important, right. and the mental health of people is important. Okay. So we're going to have to balance all of those. Okay, I'll let you go with this. Uh, uh, Dr. Jacobs' email just came in from Pamela. Thank goodness for Dr. Jacobs. He is still a light in our lives, one of the few. Interesting article, Can We Help Save Democracy by Requiring Voters to Pass a Test of Political Knowledge? It's a question that was raised on this program a few weeks ago, and I've been Looking into it, and I found the article by Ilya Soman, professor of law at George Mason University. Professor Soman is also the author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, and his new book is Free to Move. Professor Soman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Thank you very much for having me. So uh, let's begin with this this idea of a political knowledge test for voters. It's, as you point out in the in the uh, in the column you wrote, it's not a new idea. It's been proposed by a number of people. And in fact, you looked at it in looked at it in your book, Democracy and Political Ignorance. Where do we approach this from? What's the angle? In one sense, we already have this in the United States, certainly, but to some degree, I think in Canada as well, uh, we have it for immigrants who want to become citizens. In the U.S. and also I think in Canada, they have to pass a civics test if they want to become citizens and have the right to vote. Uh, and at least according to U.S. data, a, a majority of native-born Americans would actually fail that test uh, if they had to take it without studying. Uh, I think the more controversial idea, though, is extending this to the general population uh, and not just to immigrants. And there, while I'm not on principle opposed to it, I think there are some serious problems uh, that would have to be overcome and that I'm not optimistic could be successfully dealt with. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about those in, in more detail. Yeah, please do, because I, I want to come back also to the issue of whether or not our democracy is under significant assault simply because of the increasing absence of political knowledge. But, but carry on with the thought that you started to express, Professor. Sure. I'm not sure that there is an increasing absence of political knowledge, but survey data for going back decades for the U.S., Europe, and I think to a more limited extent that we have data for Canada as well, does show pretty low levels of political knowledge for a long time now. Uh, and that's a more and more serious problem as government has become larger and more complicated uh, in both our countries. Uh, so uh, one possible way then that some people have proposed addressing this issue is to say that if you want to vote in an election, you have to pass some sort of test of political knowledge, perhaps similar to the one taken by new immigrants, perhaps somewhat different. And in principle, I'm not opposed to this, but there are serious practical problems such as who gets to design the test and who gets to decide what will be the correct answers. Uh, obviously, the government in power, whether it be uh, the Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau in Canada or the Democrats or the Republicans in the U.S., uh, they will have very strong incentives to skew any such test in favor of their supporters and, and against their opponents. Uh, so that would be one very serious practical problem. But even aside from this issue of bias, you would face some difficult questions about what should be on any such test, 
what would count as a passing score uh, and also what we would do if, for example, it turned out that some racial or ethnic groups are more likely to pass the test than others, or if men are more likely to pass than women or vice versa. Uh, so that, that would raise some additional problems as well. Have you discussed this at all with your students? And if you have, what has their response been? What's the reaction of the younger generation? It's a good question. I don't actually teach a class on this. I haven't directly discussed it with students in a classroom setting. When I give talks about this at various universities in, in the U.S. and abroad, uh, I think I get mixed reactions. I myself don't advocate this sort of solution. Uh, and I think the majority of people that I mention it to probably are not in favor of it. Uh, but uh, it seems like Granted, it's probably an unrepresentative sample, but it seems like there is maybe more openness to it among more people than might be thought, uh, particularly once I point out that we already do this with respect to immigrants and we already disenfranchise about 25 percent even of the native born population in the U.S. and Canada uh, because we think they don't know enough to vote well. Uh, namely, we disenfranchise pretty much everybody under the age of 18. Uh, so uh, if we can disenfranchise many millions of people for that reason, uh, then uh, one way of looking at a kind of test proposal is to say that, uh, you know, that would just disenfranchise only, say, another five or 10 percent of the potential electorate, depending on how hard the test was. Uh, so, again, I don't actually favor this particular solution to the problem of political ignorance, uh, but I do believe it deserves serious consideration. And it's not quite as radical as it sometimes seems, especially given the large numbers of people that we already exclude from the franchise because we think uh, they would be bad voters, children, immigrants who don't pass the test. Uh, in many states in the U.S., people convicted of certain types of crimes uh, are not allowed to be voters and so on. Well, it could be political kryptonite as well for any party that suggests it. If, if they come out alone and say, this would be one of our policies, if, for example, one of the federal political parties were to suggest in the upcoming Canadian election, we're going to have one shortly, uh, were to say, well, I think we all should have, uh, in order to vote, you should be able to, you should be required to pass a political knowledge test. That would be just, you know, you might as well just pack it in. Yeah. No, I agree. If this was proposed... Uh, by prominent politicians in the U.S. or in Canada, uh, at least in a short run, it would be politically damaging to them. Though it's paradoxical, the public opinion is perfectly fine. Most public opinion is perfectly fine with accepting this approach to uh, immigrants getting to vote. Uh, and also most people, not all, but most are fine with the idea that anybody under the age of 18 is not allowed to vote because we expect that they will be bad voters. Uh, and they're not allowed to vote even if they do pass a test. So there are 16-year-olds that know much more about politics uh, than the average person my age, but uh, they're not allowed to vote at all because we just say, well, 16-year-olds as a class, we don't trust them to be good voters. Well, I can uh, tell you this. So, when I was 16, nobody should have trusted me to vote. I, I, I didn't know you at that age. That could be. Uh, all even if it's true that on average, the average 16-year-old knows less about political issues and say the average 40 year old on average that probably is true yeah. there's a lot of variation within both groups so so let's let's look at this the age uh, let's look at this demographic and you also write in your piece perhaps the problem is that schools are teaching the wrong things a better curriculum might ensure that high school students don't graduate without learning basic political and historical knowledge as many currently do not enough of them though right 
Yeah, so in both the U.S. and I think what I'm less familiar, but I think this is also true to a considerable degree in Canada, uh, when people graduate from high school, they often don't know very basic things about how the political system works. Uh, the majority of Americans cannot name the three branches of our federal government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And there's many other examples like this. In principle, we could reform the education system so that people would know more about the structure of the political system, more about economics and public policy and other topics. But there are two big obstacles to doing this, which I discuss in greater detail in my book. One is modern government is so large and sweeping, uh, it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to make most voters knowledgeable about more than a small fraction of it. For example, in both the U.S. and Canada, government spending is about a third of gross, gross domestic product or even, even higher, actually, during the COVID crisis. A second problem is you have to ask what would incentivize the politicians and other government officials who run the public schools to actually structure the curriculum in a way that would increase knowledge. After all, these politicians, most of them were elected by an electorate that knows very relatively little. Uh, why would they want to shake up the electorate uh, and therefore potentially shake up their own grip on power? Their greater incentive in most cases uh, is to either let the status quo slide or to try to use the public schools to indoctrinate students in their own preferred ideologies. So in the U.S. right now, we have an active debate between the left, which many of which wants to use the public schools to promote their ideas, particularly on racial issues, but the right is just as bad or worse. They are also happy to use the public schools to promote their partisan and ideological interests. And very few people in either the Democratic or the Republican Party actually say, well, what we want to do is we want to have a balanced curriculum that exposes people to a wide range of points of view right. and increases political knowledge and so on. Well, you know, I, I like the idea of a political knowledge test because I think in part it might generate more interest in politics and have people more just generically involved in keeping an eye on politics and political parties and, and, their, and their platforms. And it might, in fact, increase the percentage of voters or the percentage of eligible voters who actually do vote, which in this country is abysmal. It's around 60%. So it's possible it would have that effect, but it's also possible that even though people like you I knew and me, you were going to say that. Who, who, who enjoy following <laughs> politics, as I think we do, we might be enthusiastic about the test. Yeah. But the kinds of people who know relatively little and aren't interested in politics, it might be off-putting. There's also a trade-off involved in that if you increase voter turnout at the margin, uh, marginal new voters on average, there's obviously variation, but on right. average they tend to know less than those who currently vote regularly. Okay. Uh, so there might be a trade-off in some cases between quality and quantity in terms of political knowledge. The federal health, or rather heritage minister, Stephen Gilbo, uh, is interested, is determined to change the internet rules, communication rules, to put in place, as, as he describes them, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, more fair communication. Others say it's internet censorship. And uh, the uh, according to, let me just give you this, according to Blacklock's reporter, when uh, they were asked, when the Heritage Ministry, he's the Heritage Minister, of course, when they were asked in an inquiry of ministry uh, communication in the Commons, the Heritage Ministry said, yeah, well, 
they weren't contacted by any member of the general public to support any first-ever federal regulations of Internet content. They're just doing that. Nobody asked them to, but they are just doing that. So let's get at this with David Fraser, one of Canada's leading Internet technology and privacy lawyers. He's the author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. He's a partner in McKinnis Cooper in Halifax. He's a guest on this program quite regularly. And David, thank you for joining us on your Twitter account at Privacy Lawyer. You wrote just two days ago, in my experience, Ottawa-based regulators, bureaucrats, and politicians have little or no regard for charter rights and freedom of expression, content moderation, and takedown orders should only come from the courts. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, nice to chat, uh, chat right again. Um, so this is part of a wider agenda of this particular government related to regulating the internet. And this is where they're focusing on what they perceive to be as harmful content. And so certainly there have been issues and there's, there's no doubt about it with respect to hate speech, with respect to uh, terrorism recruiting, glamorization and glorification of terrorism, child pornography, and the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. Uh, and so they've proposed this as their measure to fix that, which is to have a tool by which that content <clears throat> can be taken down and taken down relatively quickly. Now, as with so many things that this government has done related to the internet, uh, they have done so in a manner that really shows callous disregard, in my view, to charter rights, because all of those things, as gross as some of those are, and most of those are, uh, they do engage charter rights. And my main problem with this particular proposal is that the way that they've structured it is to put the censorship obligation on the platforms and to build a system that hugely incentivizes just taking it all down. So there's a, a significant difference between what's sometimes called awful but lawful and unlawful content. And the courts have been struggling with drawing that line for a very long time. But the system that they're setting up requires online service providers like Twitter, like YouTube, like Facebook, to make those decisions within 24 hours uh, and if they don't do it right, according to some data commissioner, some bureaucrat in Ottawa, uh, they can be subject to significant penalties. So, of course, what are they going to do? They're just going to take it all down. And some of these things are relatively clear, but others are harder to determine. And, and again, we're dealing with some pretty gross content. So an image of somebody who's 21 might appear to be 17 but is in fact 21 so something that's completely lawful for a, a site to publish related to a professional model but if somebody perceives that person to be 17 they can issue a takedown request and the default is going to be that it's going to come down even if it's completely lawful and then we get into more challenging discussions and i think more problematic in terms of our, our general discourse about what is terrorism content uh, so is something, is a post on the internet calling to organize a protest? Is that terrorism content? Uh, somebody saying burn it all down in connection with uh, the, the reaction to uh, the discovery of unmarked graves at residential schools. Is that advocating terrorism 
Or is that just hyperbole and part of the discussion? Somebody's saying burn the system down lawfully. And so there's, there's this whole mechanism that's being built, backed up by an enormous, what I expect will be an enormous bureaucracy in Ottawa that will employ a huge number of people who will not care a whole lot about charter rights and freedoms, will be will have kind of a bloodlust to levy penalties against what they characterize as internet giants. And the ultimate tool that they wield is the ability to change our internet, which is to remove sites from being able to be accessed within Canada. So not just a page, not just a particular video that's problematic, but entire websites and entire services. And in my view, this is going after a significant problem, but with a sledgehammer rather than a scalpel. Um, and I do think that I could probably write in a couple pages the solution to this by amending our criminal code rather than creating an enormous bureaucracy in Ottawa that will essentially be the speech police. So, David, if we if we boil this down to the average person who uses the Internet is now saying, what the heck is going on? Could this apply to me? Could this apply to me now? Could this apply to me in the future? What's the answer? Well, I think the, the easiest answer to that is, yes, it, it will apply to just about everybody because it's going to limit uh, all Canadians' access to lawful content on the Internet because the government is going to essentially force service providers to delete content that Canadian residents have a legal and constitutional right to review. How do you see. know what that content is? If you're the average person, is this a, a moving target? Well, we're, we're never going to know uh, because we're not going to, they're not going to kind of publish, hey, we've removed this particular link um, and then provide people with access in order to scrutinize it. And that's often a problem. That these sorts of things are going to happen in the shadows. So, for example, the way that it's being set up, or the way that it's being proposed is that the person who published the content won't get notice of the fact that somebody has objected to it and says it's going to be taken down. Now, some of the categories of content is, is absolutely disgusting stuff. We're talking about things that might be or are child sexual abuse materials and uh, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. But the challenge is that it, at the Internet service provider end of things or the Internet company end of things, they have no idea what the context of that particular posting is. Uh, so in order for something to be an illegal, non-consensually distributed intimate image, you have to determine whether or not the person had a reasonable expectation of privacy at the time the image was made and after the fact. And if you think that somebody working essentially in a call center reviewing complaints is going to ever have the time to inquire into that, the easiest thing is always going to be to take it down. But what gets more problematic is when you move into kind of the things related to social cohesion, as you said, or terrorism content, that legitimate political speech can look like that, and it can simply be taken down. So you let me ask you people, this. Why, why the Ministry of Heritage? Isn't I that strange? No why, why. It, oh, it's absolutely strange. I think that's, that's completely telling, because Minister Guibault... Uh, seems to be riding some sort of vendetta related to the internet giants, as he can, as he as he often often says. This is something that, if it really was about illegal content on the internet, it would be under the Attorney General or the Department of Justice. Heritage is about culture. Heritage is about things like that, <laughs> regulating broadcasting. 
but he has somehow um, uh, pulled into his portfolio and his sphere of influence anything related to online communication. Oh, so, so are they are the opposition parties then doing enough to challenge all of this? Um, and what can the what do you suggest the average person do if the average person can do anything? Well, certainly, so at this stage, so we don't have a bill that's been proposed. We, we, we knew this was coming for quite some time. And so what they have launched is a discussion paper, which is, in my view, a complete fiction. So what they have launched is a discussion about what they intend to do in the fall. Um, and so they launched this while Parliament was not sitting. Parliament is off for, for the summer vacation. Right. Um, and so there's no, there, there's no bill to be scrutinized, but there is a detailed plan to look at. And so I think if Parliament resumes, and I don't expect that they will, I expect we're going to have an election, this should become a ballot box question. Uh, this should be the, the general approach of Minister Gibo in particular, but also this government in general to the Internet should be something that should be in people's minds related to when they go to the ballot box. Um, and, and I would be, uh, I suppose the optimist in me suggests that, that Gibo will never be given heritage ministry portfolio uh, in, a, in a new government if the uh, if the Trudeau government is reelected. But those are a whole bunch of what ifs. And so I think we should be paying attention to this. We should be making noise. We do have up until September 25 to put in comments on it. And I would strongly encourage people to put in comments on it because I think it becomes politically hard for a piece of junk like this to be passed uh, if the comments that they receive are unanimous in condemnation and saying, look, there absolutely is stuff that is illegal and should be taken down off the internet. The Supreme Court of Canada has determined exactly that that when you when you look at all the balancing in our charter, that this is legitimately illegal in Canada. Uh, but judges should make that call, and they should order it to be taken yeah. down, and it should be taken down right away. We don't have to create a multi-million-dollar bureaucracy in Ottawa uh, that has that is incentivized to remove. Uh, kind of everything that's in the gray areas. Judges are, are Understood. Used to dealing with the gray areas and drawing the lines and, and determining where those lines okay. are. So while I was putting this segment together about the political knowledge test, I started to think about who else gets to vote in federal elections. And it still takes people by surprise when I tell them that Paul Bernardo has the right to vote. Russell Williams, serial killer, former senior officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force, has the right to vote. Alec Manassian has the right to vote. And the way it works is that these individuals vote in the writing where they last lived before they were arrested. So in Bernardo's case, that means he will vote in St. Catharines, Ontario, which happens to also be the home of Doug and Donna French, the parents of Kristen. And so Bernardo, if he chooses to vote, may very well cancel out the vote of one of the parents of Kristen. And I know the parents very well personally. I haven't talked to them for some time, but I know them very well personally. They're wonderful people. Bernardo, as you know, just recently took advantage of his opportunity to petition for a parole. So... Should convicted murderers like Bernardo, Williams, Manassian be permitted to vote? 
others with serious criminal convictions perhaps as well. Ari Goldkind, criminal lawyer, media pundit in Toronto. Ari, what do you think? Roy, it's a really interesting question. And just for some background to this, and the point that you make which drives really the issue home is Paul Bernardo's vote vote cancel out the votes of the French or Mahaffey family. When you look at it from that point of view, it's a really hard argument to make that Paul Bernardo should be able to exercise his rights in a country which would theoretically limit the rights of Mahaffey's and the French's. So there is some historical context to this, and just for people to know, in the United States, but for two states, felons cannot vote while they're in prison. And even when they're released, nine other states prevent um, felons from voting until their periods of probation or parole are off. The United Kingdom has dealt with this issue. There are countries all over the world that prevent uh, convicted felons, and the term felon, by the way, meaning a serious offender, not a summary conviction, you know, not a shove or a fist fight at a bar, but we're talking serious things. So my view is, let's look back at what the Supreme Court in 2002 now, Roy, 2002 for many people is a distant memory. They, won't, they weren't even born then. But our Supreme Court, in a very heated, very heated, pre-social justice, pre-woke, uh, pre-virtue signaling Twitter world, in a very, very contentious 5-4 split, said that uh, convicted felons, murderers, must be able to vote in Canada. They said it would be contrary to the rule of law to prevent convicted murderers from voting and the four people who dissented roy and this is a great read for those who aren't that interested in today's social justice language but more in terms of common sense the four judges told the five that they don't know what they're talking about that their notions are ridiculous and if you go out and kill somebody you're essentially saying you have no respect for the rule of law so where i would come down on my side of the fence mindful i have to look at it from both sides as a criminal defense lawyer, as a citizen, is I don't know that a convicted murderer should be able to vote. That, to me, is if it's a serious personal injury offense, a rape, uh, child abuse of a serious nature, a very serious aggravated assault or murder, to me that person has forfeited their right to be part of the democratic political a process no different than their right to not serve on a jury, not to have a gun, for example, in the States, a whole series of other things, and I'll pause there. Yeah. I've, uh, Ari, I've had programs inside prisons with the inmates committee members, and I aired one in, uh, in Joyceville Prison outside Kingston a number, well, quite a few years ago. And uh, the the issue of the likes of Paul Bernardo, in this case it was Clifford Olson, who was the mass murderer of kids in British Columbia. His name came up. And I said to them, so there's obviously no respect for Clifford Olson in this prison. What would happen to him if he were placed into the general population of this prison? And the answer, Ari, was instant. He would be murdered. That was the, that was the immediate response. So there is no forgiveness for the likes of Paul Bernardo, I mean, he's kept in security and safety in prison because the same thing would happen to him if the general population had access to him. Uh, and, and then I opened the phone lines. And we did it the day after the program. And you know, the significant majority, the vast majority of callers, 
sided with the inmates committee members. They believed that Paul Bernardo should have been executed, that the death penalty should still be on the books for, and I'm not trying to reopen a, an, an ancient argument, but they, the callers believe the death penalty still should be on the books for the likes of Bernardo, for the likes of Williams, for the likes of Manassian. It isn't, but the, the, the emotion is, is strong. And, and somebody, I remember somebody saying, in order to participate in society, you should be a functioning member of society. Well, look, let's, let's go, let's drive that point home from three weeks ago. Paul Bernardo, at his stupid waste of time parole hearing, which was just a cry for attention and a day out of his cell, said to the parole board, I want to be let out into the general population. Now, I, when I was commenting on it in my uh, media life, said, well, that's a pretty bold statement. We know what would happen. Funnily enough, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, because you talked about a personal connection to them, came out and said, why don't we indulge that wish? Yeah, and I know Tim Danson very well. More bizarre. I know Tim Danson very well, Ari. Sorry? I know Tim Danson very well. Yeah, so I thought that was an extremely bold statement for a lawyer to make. I mean, I don't know that I would have gone as far to make that statement. I mean, I probably would have if I say what I want to say half the time. But, you know, you look at what the law does allow. Like, let's just go back to what the law says, because the law on this is a three-letter word. You know what the three-letter word is. It starts with A and ends with an S. And the point of it is, if you get convicted of certain electoral offenses, electoral fraud and electoral offense, you know, we've seen some people get convicted of this over the years, you forfeit your right to vote. You, mm-hmm. That is part of your punishment that you're not allowed to vote for a prescribed period of time. Right. I would suggest that what Alec Manassian did on Young Street, or what Faisal Hussein on the Danforth, he was shot, or Paul Bernardo did to those two beautiful young women, and about over a dozen other women that we never talk about who he raped. Let's use the word. Let's not gild the lily. Now, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget Carla Polka's own 14-year-old sister, Tammy. That, but my point is, is we always just talk about, well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with talking about French and Mahaffey, but when you talk about Bernardo, you've got to widen the net. My point is, if certain people who commit electoral fraud or an electoral offense, the law says it's fine, you know, to not let them vote, I don't know that I can come up with a greater sin against the moral good than murder and the idea that not only do they have the right to vote, um, Roy, but the jails have to facilitate their being able to vote. In the United States, sometimes jails are not commanded to do it, but when you look at the 2002 language from the Supreme Court, a different era, pre-George Floyd, You know, a lot of people make the argument that because there's a heavy degree of Aboriginal people in the jails or a certain race in the jails and penitentiaries, that this would be racist. Twenty years ago, when the Supreme Court talked about this, and they would never say it now because we live in a totally different world, they said, and I will quote, the fact of being incarcerated does not arise because of a stereotypical application of a presumed group characteristic. It goes on to say it's you know, it's, you know, uh, silliness to think that it's because of race that people are in jail or because there's a disproportionate number of people of a certain race that it would disenfranchise certain races or cultures. Now, you could never have a court say that today. They're all virtue-signaling institutions a lot of the time. But really, again, for the Canadian people who often get outraged about a lot of things, Roy, that you and I have argued about that I don't think are outrageous. There's a reason people in penitentiaries 
you know, often should be able to apply for parole. There's a reason you want people to think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. When you take lives or commit what I say, and this is a legal term, a serious personal injury offense, I just don't know how it's not proportional. That's the Supreme Court term. Again, going back 20 years ago, a 5-4 split. It seems proportional to me that when you kill somebody, run them over, shoot them, rape them, that you've essentially said to society, I don't care about your rules, and society says back to you, you forfeit your right to one of the most sacrosanct rights of citizens. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 